open not only our outer ears, but the inner ears of our hearts to receive what you would say to us this day, to make it a part of us, that we also may dwell in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday, in the scripture readings and the sermon, we heard about our call as followers of Jesus to transformation of life, to reconciliation, to love for one another. And this morning, we hear that same call and commandment repeated, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. According to St. John, this is the identifying mark of the Christian. Anyone who does not love does not know God. But then he adds something new. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. This is probably one of the most famous statements in the New Testament. Surely it must be one of the most often quoted statements in the New Testament. Unfortunately, it may also be one of the most inadequately understood statements in the New Testament. People today love to say that God is love, but we don't always stop to ask ourselves, what does that really mean? And I think we don't often ask ourselves what that really means because we assume we already know, because it seems obvious to us. Of course, God is love. Everybody knows that. But in the first century world, when St. John is writing this epistle, everybody does not know that. This is not obvious. If you know anything about the Greek or Roman deities, I've been teaching some of these ancient Greco-Roman texts this last semester. It turns out that they aren't always exactly loving. They're capricious. They often seem selfish. They fight amongst themselves quite a bit. Uh, love is a god. They call him Eros or Cupid, but he's one of the most capricious of them all. Just because love is a god, this does not mean that the gods love you. And it certainly doesn't mean God is love. Of course, ancient philosophers talk about a divine being who's the first principle, the prime mover, the source of existence. But that God is an absolute pure unity who has no direct interaction with the lower orders of creation, who certainly doesn't muck about with material things. God is love sounds an awful lot like nonsense if you're talking about the God of the philosophers. And I think this is true even for a lot of modern religions. It's far from obvious to say that God is love or to mean something like what St. John means by it. And I wonder, even when we say God is love, how often do we basically just mean we think God is loving? Or when I have feelings of love, God must be in that somehow. Anthony Eslin somewhere described this as the great God smiley in the sky, who uh, gazes down beneficently from afar and mostly affirms and blesses whatever I want or feel as long as I play nice with others. Ah, God is love. What a nice thought. And then we forget about it and get on with our lives. But the truth that God is love isn't obvious. 
When St. John writes these words, he's making a provocative claim. It's contentious. It's surprising. And if he's right, it's also really important. Because he says if we don't love, that proves we don't actually know God. If we say we love God but hate our brother, we're liars. We're deceiving ourselves. If we get love wrong, we get God wrong. How can we love the way God does unless we know what it means to say that God is love? I want to suggest that Jesus' words at the start of our gospel reading point us in the right direction. As the Father has loved me, he says, so have I loved you. When we think about God's love, we tend to think about it primarily in terms of God's relationship with us. Well, we're ourselves. This is our perspective, right? God acts in a loving way. We experience God as love, at least sometimes. But that isn't where Jesus begins. Jesus starts talking about love within the Godhead itself. As the Father has loved me, the divine Father and the divine Son from all eternity in this fellowship and union of total love and delight. Remember, the God of the philosophers is a solitary monad. Who does that God have to love? The gods of the polytheists are often in conflict with one another. This doesn't look like love. But as Christians, we profess faith in a God as a triune unity, truly one God who is three persons perfectly united. When we say God is love, we're making a theological claim about God's own nature and character. Love in this sense is not a feeling. It's not just a commitment to care and concern. It's not even just a disposition to show kindness and compassion. No, God's love is the mutual self-giving and receiving unity of the triune God. That's what we mean when we say God is love. But this love is abundant. It overflows. And God, in love, has chosen to bring forth creatures who can be recipients and participants in his love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. And we see in this morning's gospel and epistle readings the character of God's love, that love of the triune God in relation to us. And I want to point out four things in particular about this divine love. First of all, God's love is exalting. It gives honor. What does Jesus say? No longer do I call you servants. I have called you friends. Now, it's amazing enough that God would show care and concern for his creatures, given the distance between God and us. It's sufficiently incredible that God would want us to be in relationship with him. It's not as if we have something he needs. It is not as if he's suffering from some lack that we can fulfill. But God, in love, goes much further than that. He exalts us. He draws us up to his own level so that he can share his love with us. In ancient thought, friendship implies some kind of equality. You'll find this in Aristotle. You'll find it in Cicero. Of course, we're not equal to God, you say. That's ridiculous. True. And yet, I have called you friends. And we hear something similar in Exodus 33. 
The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Back and forth facing one another. The character of God's love is to exalt the ones he loves. Second, this love of God is participatory. It doesn't just exalt, it shares with the beloved. No longer do I call you servants. Why? Because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. St. Thomas Aquinas describes this act of divine self-revelation to the apostles as the action of a friend revealing the secrets of his heart to his friends. Again, according to Aristotle, true friendship always entails some kind of sharing. There has to be common ground that belongs to both of us for us to have a friendship. And that's what Jesus extends to his followers. All that I have heard from my Father, all of it, I've made known to you. He tells them the secrets of his heart. They become true participants in the hidden mystery of divine love. Which leads us to the third characteristic of this love, that it's self-giving. In fact, we could almost say that it's self-abandoning. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus tells us, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends, and that means what's mine is yours. Everything that's mine is yours, even the breath in my nostrils, the blood flowing through my arteries, the life animating my body. God's love is a love of sacrifice. In the words of a former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, his love is to be measured by his death. So here's the thing. This vision of God's love is incredibly beautiful. I hope you see that. It's also more than a little terrifying. Because remember, Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Oh, no. I don't know about you. I want to be loved like that. That sounds great. But how on earth am I supposed to love like that? Friends, we have a problem. And we're going to get stuck here unless and until we recognize the fourth characteristic of divine love, which is that it's preemptive. It's preemptive. Certain strands of Christian theology talk a lot about provenient grace, grace that goes ahead of us, God acting to save us before we've done anything to deserve it. And that is wonderfully true. But maybe we don't talk as much as we should about provenient love. Listen to what Scripture says. In this is love. You want to know what love is like? Here it is. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love, John says, because God first loved us. I think we get this wrong all the time, and it's subtle, because Jesus does command us to love, right? But it's so dangerously easy to slip back into thinking, I show love and that makes me the sort of person God loves. 
Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, Scripture reverses that causation. We love because God first loved us. Jesus turns our moral reasoning on its head. Jesus turns everything on its head. He preempts our inadequacy with undeserved, unearned love. The Son of God abases himself so that we can be exalted, so that he can honor us, so that we can share the hidden mysteries of his love. And that, beloved, saves us. You notice how St. John addresses his readers in this epistle? It happens twice in this morning's reading. He calls them beloved. Some of you may know that the fourth gospel never refers to its author by name, but he's there. He's a character. You remember how he describes himself? The disciple Jesus loved. This happens four or five times in the second half of John's gospel. The disciple Jesus loved. It's as if even decades later, he can't get over this. He's been saturating in it. His love has sunk so deep into him that it's reshaped his self-perception, his very identity. It's not John anymore. It's not the son or friend or husband or neighbor or father of so-and-so. It's not even the one who wrote a gospel. But at the most fundamental level, who am I? I'm the one Jesus loved. Beloved, John writes, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our love is imitative. We're supposed to do what God has done, following that same pattern. If that commandment is a demand based on my capacity to love, I'm in trouble. But when we hear this primarily as a moral command, we're missing the point, okay? Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And in the epistle, six times in five verses, we hear that word again, abide. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I think in our own society, we talk about romantic love this way sometimes. We talk about falling in love or being in love as if it's something that comes upon us from outside, something larger than ourselves. And yet somehow something that makes us more fully ourselves. There are some potential problems with this idealization of romance. But I think maybe there's also a hint here of what Scripture's talking about. Not just loving like God, but being in love. Within love himself, abiding in God so that our thoughts and words and actions become a participation in God's love. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. What love? God's love? Yes. My love? Yes. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is what transforms Jesus' commandment to love one another from an unbearable burden to a source of joy. He tells the disciples, I've spoken these things that my joy may be in you. Because look, anyone can attempt to lead a life shaped by kindness and generosity. It's better than being unkind and ungenerous. But that's not Christian love. Christian love doesn't start with us. 
It's God's love working in and through us. If I can borrow from Archbishop Temple again, he says, abide in me and love one another are not two things. To love one another is to know the love of God. To abide is to produce fruit. And so it is that we're commanded to exalt and honor one another, to share what we have with one another. What's mine is yours, to the point of sacrifice, even to the point of my own life. And yes, we even have to love our brothers and sisters who are apparently failing to love us. God's love is preemptive, you may recall. But the only way to fulfill Jesus' commandment is to be so saturated in his love that it sinks into us. So that it reshapes our imagination and our self-perception so that our identity becomes the one Jesus loves. Because only the one who abides in God's own preemptive, self-giving, self-sharing, exalting love can love the way that God does. That's what St. John means when he talks about being perfected in love. If we love one another, he says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love arrives fully. Its completeness is made known. Our lives, our homes, our work, our words, everything we are as a church family becomes a participation in the love of the triune God. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.